the Media Society Podcast. Hello and welcome to the third Media Society Podcast. My name's Paul Blanchard. What we do is we get the best and the brightest around the table and discuss issues in the media, both old and new. Immigration continues as ever to dominate the headlines, but is the media to blame, even in part? Well, they've just fired the editor, so is anyone's job at the Daily Telegraph safe? Or is the inevitable march to digital actually putting at real risk the job of a traditional print journalist? And you wouldn't want to be Nick Clegg at the moment. The Lib Dems seem beset with problem after problem. Who's to blame for what's going on? Can they recover or is the situation going to get worse? Michael Wilson is, it says here, Britain's longest-serving TV business editor, Michael. Well, good luck, isn't it? It's yeah, true. It's very good. It's true. 20 years at Sky News, and you're now at Arise, is that right? Yes, Arise News, which is a new global news service which is directed towards Africa and the African diaspora and also in the United States as well. So, I mean, I've been in on the telly, as it were, doing business for 30 years, so I think that's... It's far too long, isn't it, really? It's incredible. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much. Longest serving, wow. And we're also joined by Mark Thompson, the political commentator, blogger and podcaster. Mark, thanks for coming in. No problem. Thanks for having me. And you used to be a member of the Lib Dems as well, so I think we can discuss that as the first story, really. As you've probably heard, the Lib Dems are launching yet another inquiry into Lord Renard's behaviour. He's not apologised, his suspension continues, and it's an almighty pig's ear. Mark, you used to be a member of the Lib Dems and was an activist for many years. Where did it all go wrong? Who's to blame and uh, what's going to fix it? <laughs> well, have you got a couple of years? Um, I mean, I think in terms of who's to blame, it, it's a bit awkward because um, the the inquiry that the Lib Dems actually kicked off and that reported recently didn't really come to a proper conclusion. So it said that um, there was a less than 50% chance that um, the allegations would be held up in a court of law. But also at the same time, it said that the the evidence from the women and there the were four women who have publicly identified themselves and I think it's up to ten. Yeah, there's six um, that haven't come forward yes, so far. Yeah, so the, the, there's a number who've done so anonymously and that their evidence was broadly credible. So you've got a situation where it, basically the inquiry is saying there's no reason to doubt what the women have said but there just, there just isn't enough evidence for a prosecution to be successful. And then, then at the same time, what you have is Lord Renard digging his heels in and refusing to apologise. And I think his rationale for refusing to apologise is that um, he fears that if he was to do so, then that would leave himself wide open to future legal action. Now, I think that is pretty questionable, but that's the road that he's he's gone down. And now we have this kind of bizarre situation where what's happened is that Nick Clegg has kind of summoned a meeting of the regional parties committee. And don't get me started on how convoluted the, the internal structures within the Lib Dems are, but this is yet another Structure, and I'll be honest, I'd never heard of it until about two days ago. Yeah, I've been and, a member of the Labour Party for 20 odd years. There are these yeah. obscure committees that can do anything they like. I they? think the Lib Dems might be worse. I don't know if you've seen the organogram that was in the Morrissey report that reported last year. It I honestly, didn't know. complete, just like, like 10 times worse than Spaghetti Junction. It's all over the place. Um, and through the kind of the fig leaf of that committee, they've now been able to suspend Lord Renard pending another inquiry into his response to the last inquiry. Uh, it's just a bizarre situation. And I do not think that the Lib Dems look good. Uh, and I'd be saying this whether I was a member or not. I just think it looks like a complete and utter mess, frankly. Michael, do you think Nick Clegg's got it wrong, really? I mean, clearly he's been cleared by several inquiries. I get the sense that he feels he's innocent. I think if he's yeah. guilty of it... I mean, I don't... Lord Reynard cannot apologise because if he apologises, it just seems that sincerity and so on have got a, a long history of misdemeanours from Jeremy Thorpe and Norman Scott Paddy Ashdown, etc. Mm. You know, the, the, the whole lot of them. 
Um, Renard is a geek and he, I think, is credited by most people as having actually put the Lib Dems... Mark will tell me I'm wrong, I don't know. But certainly put the Lib Dems on that. He was the person who sat down and did the boring bits that nobody else wanted to do. The no boundaries, could be bothered. The, you know, the messing around. There's a real grass-level stuff that the Lib Dems actually are very good at. Lib Dems really ought to be running local councils. They shouldn't be at a high level of government because they're not that kind of party. What they are, the majority of them, are sincere people who like to get involved and in doing things locally. I was rejoiced whenever I moved around in various places I've lived in London and outside London, if there was a Lib Dem council, because I knew the dustbins had be done and I knew the holes in the road would be fixed and I know that they were very earnest, but they actually did quite a good job. So Paddy Ashdown says the guy is a genius. So Nick Clegg hasn't handled it at all well. But if you, you were, know, if you were uh, Nick's media advisor, what would you advise him to do? Would you have said the policy was necessary? Do you know what? Necessary? I wouldn't have the job. I just, I, I couldn't. I'm not a PR guy. I, I don't know the answer to that question. What the Lib Dems ought to be doing is rejoicing in the fact that this funny coalition that they have is gradually pulling the country out of... It wasn't a recession. It never was a recession, but it was very close to one. All the economic indicators, because I'm saying this because I'm a business journalist, are mm. really good. They're not be messing around with this kind of stuff and, in, and looking inward at all the internal complications that Mark was talking about and the committees that have to meet and so on. They've got a bigger role than that. This needs to be done, pushed aside, forgotten, stick Renard back in again. The women should have given him a good slap. I mean, Mark, you, you must know this yourself. The media coverage has been relentless. Clearly, Nick Clegg doesn't want this. What do you think is his next move to try and make this go away as quickly as possible? I'm not sure. I mean, this 14-week process that's now been kicked off is just stalling. I think what he's probably hoping is that the furore dies down, people sort of forget or at least only vaguely remember what was, wasn't the something about some lord and don't really remember the details and hopefully he can, he can do it that way. I think if, if that's what he thinks is going to happen, though, I think he's mistaken. I think that... Um, I mean, you've only got to see the way the media, you know, Renard was splashed all over the front pages. You know, it's finally given, uh, given the press something to really bash Clegg over. Actually, I say finally, they, they, they don't need much of an excuse, to be fair. But, um, but I, I, I don't know what he does next in this situation. Um, he is very constrained by the sort of structures that I was talking about earlier. I mean, one of the things that the Lib Dems really pride themselves on is how democratic they are as a party. So power is devolved down to various bodies, various institutions, local parties, and so on and so forth. And Clegg just can't do what Cameron and Miliband can do in their parties, which is to just click the fingers, make a decision, and make something happen. Clegg doesn't have that power, and I don't think people recognise that. In, In some ways, I think that's a very good thing. It was one of the things I used to really like about the party. But at the same time, I mean, I'm not going to agree with what Michael said there, because I I do think that the Lib Dems um, were right to try and and vie for power. Um, And I think uh, maybe what Michael isn't quite appreciating is that the reason why they build up these local power bases and they do so well locally and they're such good local campaigners is precisely because they're trying to win seats at Westminster. I mean, okay, so the the local stuff is kind of a, a means in itself as well. But ultimately, they want to get national representation and they wanted to be in but government. They, I, I, yeah, Mark, about your better knowledge about that, but this, as far as I'm concerned, they are still a party which is looking with an eye either side of the fence all the time and they and they will do that in the, in, in the, in the, in the run-up to the election as well. Now, 
That's one way of, of being a party. It wouldn't be my way of being a party. I'd have very firm ideas about what I wanted to do and go down that road and, you know, devil take the hindmost and all that. That's, that's their problem. So, and, and this, this is the Lib Dems writ large. They're vacillating. They're between, as you say, they've got to go through all this democratic process and so on. And they're going to be hoist by their own petard when they should be either with Labour or with the Tories, whichever side they want to go, and pushing towards the next election. It's worth it's worth just pointing out as well, like, picking up on something else that, that Michael said, that, that Renard is, well, was anyway, revered within the party mm. as this genius strategist. And he really was. I mean, there aren't many people I can think of who have an ism after their name, but there is genuinely a term used within the Lib Dems, Renardism. It's the approach that he, he pioneered of focusing and drilling down and trying to win seats and and the way they would just pull resources in for by-elections and the bar charts and all of that stuff. You know, I'm not saying he was solely responsible for it, but he was a big figure behind a lot of that stuff. See, what, um, fa- what fascinates me about the situation is, is normally, you know, as a, as a PR professional, I can tell out the way a story's going to go, but with this one, I actually don't have a clue. It no. just could go either way. People have said it could be the end of Clegg. I think that's probably overstating it, but frankly, nothing would surprise me. Interesting. Well... The axing of Tony Gallagher. Chief Content Officer Jason Seacon spent years at the American broadcasting company PBS, and before that he was Editor-in-Chief at the Washington Post website. He's now joined the Telegraph Media Group, and what was one of his first decisions? To fire the editor of the paper, Tony Gallagher, and it came as a complete shock to many. Is this an inevitable consequence of the move to digital? Are all these jobs safe? Or are the casualties of the digital age to come? Michael? I hear from chums at the Telegraph and outside the Telegraph that the place is in turmoil and it's being really badly managed. Journalists are vain, some stupid, some good, but they like to be told basically what... They like to feel as though a management is actually looking after them. They go and do their own stuff, do the stories and the rest of it. This clearly is not happening at the Telegraph. It's a real shame because business pages of the Telegraph and the main pages of the Telegraph have actually been a birthing ground and a maturing ground for some fantastic journalism and some fantastic journalists. And in my part of the game, if you'd worked on... I didn't. I wished I had. I wish to God I'd worked on that paper, on the business pages, because the the, the Neil Collins of this world, the, the business editors, took no prisoners. I mean, they were great, great journalists, and this is this is such a shame. I don't know the new guy who's come in, and I don't know Tony Gallagher, but I can see what's happening. I mean, to bring a guy in from PBS in the United States and imagine that he knows anything about finance, I mean, it's a public service organisation. Um, Washington Post, I don't know, maybe he, maybe he knew about the finances of the, the Washington Post. But clearly what's happening is that the Barclay Brothers have decided that it's got to go digital. It will go digital because that's that's the way forward. It will have its own television service as well. It's got it at the moment. It does it does a bit of television. Mm, it dabbles, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, that TV. is a stupid move. Why have television in a newspaper? Television is cumbersome. You can't actually express yourself on television in the same way you can express yourself in an article. You can't put all the statistics mm. that you need from an article and all that. I think it's a silly move, but it's the way forward. And there's a, there's a big phrase in the television bit where I work, it's all change is bad, and this is <laughs> yeah. bad. And to get rid of somebody who, again, I don't know Tony Gallagher, but I'm just sort of reacting to some of the people who I've spoken to, has said that the guy, you know, was a newspaper and he was banged out of the newsroom. I mean, they did it in the traditional traditional way. He'd obviously, there'd obviously been a clash between the two of them. Mm. 
I think um, there's something gone on yeah. behind the scenes. And I, I think it's I think it's bad. And also, finally, sorry to bore on about it, but the the the, the last bit about it is clearly the Telegraph has fallen back as far as the digi- digital revolution is concerned. Times has outpaced it massively. Times did this years ago. Um, it, it's a great newspaper, and this is not a good move. Mark, what's your view? Well, I mean, it, the manner of his departure seems pretty brutal. I mean, it seems to hark back to the old school of Fleet Street, you know. Um, uh, I understand he was just summarily dismissed and basically, you know, ushered out of the building almost immediately. I think officially he was made redundant. Ah, well, OK. He so, was still frog-marched out the building, yes, so it's I the think, same thing. Yeah, yeah. you can use whatever terminology you want, but he was out, and he was out immediately. I mean, usually people get a bit of a, a, bit of a chance to kind of, you know, wind things up. Um, I mean, as regards the the broader questions about digital, I do think that the Telegraph is struggling in that regard. I mean, I'm you know I'm not directly involved in journalism myself, and I'm I'm speaking more as a kind of consumer of these things, and you know a, a kind of an interested watcher in that respect. But um, you know there are several media brands, you know, newspaper media brands that I would put above. They seem to get digital, whereas yeah. I don't think the Telegraph I mean, did. I think the, Michael makes a, a good point there. The Guardian, for example, you know, I mm. think has an excellent digital offering, yeah. regardless of whether you agree with, you know, its editorial Absolutely. stance on whatever. Um, you know, the, co- the whole comment is free thing that they have, and, and they have a global presence as well that they're really pushing. But clearly, as a business, the Guardian is failing. I mean, just uh, over the last few days, it's had to dispose of its interest in auto trader. It's got 600 million quid or whatever it is. Great. But what they're doing, I, I would say, is selling off the family silver to subsidise a clearly hugely loss-making business. It is loss-making, but um, what you have to wonder is what the environment's going to look like in five or ten years' time. And, um, I mean, you know, a little bit like with the BBC, it's the old uh, catchphrase, isn't it? The unique way in which they're funded. And The Guardian has a unique way in which it's funded. It's the Scott Trust. You know, they could probably go on for a long, long time on that basis and not have to worry that much about making money. They they, they maybe could ride out this whole um, digital revolution time and perhaps come out the other side eventually profitable in whatever landscape we find. Do you know, it's see. really weird. Absolutely, I've never even thought about this till you actually mentioned it. You know, they've 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 coming around the full circle, aren't they? In the old days, newspapers were owned by autocrats, people who wanted to, you know, own the thing. It was a toy, a very good toy, and a big one, and all the rest of it. But they were rich people who. As uh, had a newspaper more or less uh, as, as a hobby. Then there was the circulation wars and all the rest of it in, in, in the 60s and 70s and the prices going up and down and, you know, etc. And then new launches like The Sun and so on. Um, and then it was the ads which were massive in the, in the 70s and 80s. And now as the media disintegrated into lots of different outlets then the ad revenue actually goes down. Mark's absolutely right. You know, it's down now, unfortunately, in lots of ways for oligarchs or... Benevolent billionaires is how I wrote it, yeah. You know, to have it as a little hobby, which is what what The Guardian is. It's a good hobby, but that's that's, that's absolutely what it is. Has it ever been as naked, though, as it is with Evening Standard at the moment? I mean, I'm sure Evgeny Lebedev's a nice guy, but you can't... I mean, it's almost like reading Hello! magazine now. Every every time you turn the page, there's a big picture of him with his big beard and socialising with all these celebs. So I read it every night. I understand where it's coming from. Yeah, there's a lot of showbiz stuff, but for heaven's sake, this is... The capital of the world. This is the greatest city in the world. Of course, its evening newspaper is 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 going to be like that. I don't have a problem with it. Mark, does it even bother you who owns the newspaper that you're reading at that moment? Do you give it any thought? Yeah, I do, but I'm not normal, so I'm not sure. <laughs> Neither am I. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I do tend to know roughly who owns what in the media landscape in this country. Um, I'm not a big fan of Murdoch. 
and I don't read The Sun. I do read The Times. I don't subscribe, but I certainly used to read it when it was free online. And if I'm, you know, sitting in a, you know, a waiting room somewhere and there's a copy of The Times, I'll quite happily read it. On the ownership of things, um, I, I worked at Sky for um, 20 years, so effectively for Murdoch, because it was a large percentage of B Sky B is actually owned by owned by News Corp. Did you maintain a constant link to him in your earpiece where he could tell you and what you can and can't I say? I was business editor. And you would have thought, wouldn't you, that something as sensitive as that would have had the imprint of a Murdoch and whatever you think he stands for constantly imprinted on everything he did. I can tell you over 20 years, not a peep. I met him. I interviewed him. Did this stuff. I never got any guidance, any forcible guidance from him whatsoever. Secondly, I travel on into London on this funny train from Basingstoke. I bore you with this information because it's the 629. The 629 is full of the city's finest because they come into Waterloo, they live out in Hampshire or wherever. They take the drain. They take the drain yeah. to, to the city and they're at their desks at top of seven, right? And I can tell you, on that train, very few newspapers, iPads, reading the digital editions of the FT, the Times, and that says it for me. If that sort of generation of people, middle-aged, you know, fairly successful people are doing that, then that's that's the way forward. It's absolutely incredible, actually, when you now sit on a train and you look and there is almost no one who doesn't have a smartphone or mm. an iPad yeah. or, you know, or even one of the cheaper versions of the tablets that have come out in the last couple of years. It's amazing how things have changed in just a few years. But the, 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 the other thing that I, I don't know the answer to, because, I, again, I don't, I don't work on a newspaper, but in traditional days, you know, you'd like have your 11 o'clock... So here's a print newspaper. Right? So you get in about 10... Right, you have a morning meeting at eleven thirty, and then everybody says that's what you're going to do. Twelve thirty, it breaks up. You get a lunch or whatever, meet your contacts and all the rest of it, and then you get back and you start writing about two, and then there's an afternoon meeting at three, and blah, 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 and the day goes on, and the paper actually goes out. It's first edition, second edition, rest of it. Online, how does that work? Does it make a difference? Well, I think the deadline is get the story out as quickly as possible because otherwise, you know, five other or fifty other news outlets will have yeah, it before you. Yeah, will. which which to me actually um, means that the, the journalism can't be as good. Because if you're just churning it as rapidly as possible, you know, get it out. Because it, it used to say that the big famous thing in the Daily Express was get it first, but first get it right. That's what they used to say. That was the big thing that it used to say in the, in the Daily Express. Now it's just, um, what is it, shoot, aim, fire, you know? Sky started that. When I worked there, I mean, they, you know, they, they used to bang it out. Its, its brand was breaking news. And I can tell you we got some of it wrong, you know. Um, never wrong for long. That was the sort of slang that we used to. <laughs> but it's not. It's not. Right. But yes, I mean, the, the digi I don't know how the digital thing affects you. All I know is that a shrinking band of brothers and sisters are working twice as hard. Yeah, I think, I mean, Sky's got quite a good... Uh history of kind of trusting its journalists. I mean, I've, I've been in pubs with journalists who've, you know, got a bit of gossip on their uh, text and they've just rang Sky Centre immediately and then suddenly the telly in the um, corner of the pub suddenly comes up with the breaking news thing. So, you know, they, they do want to be first. And I think that's quite a good culture, but it can go wrong, can't it? Uh, we always wanted to beat the BBC, you know, mm. by a fraction of a second, because as if it mattered, you know, <laughs> yeah. as if anybody really cared. cared. But then yeah. again, it was breaking news. And we and we wondered why the BBC, because the BBC is slow. It just is, because that's yeah, the way it is. It, is. Yeah. it was not as fast as Sky. Very different kind of ethos there. And we used to wonder why they beat us. And it wasn't until a geek 
friend, somebody as expert as Mark, maybe even more expert than Mark, said, no, 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 what you do is you go into the Treasury website and I can actually go into the website and I can get that information on the computer. They immediately, it happens. And that's what we did. We spent hours doing that for the to get it a nanosecond before the BBC. I don't know what happens now. That's how crazy things were. <laughs> Sounds incredible. It's mad, isn't it? You know, who cares? Who cares? But no, the, the digital thing is... Uh, is is a is a fantastic revolution. Had you ever that, had you ever been on air? Because I mean, I, I'm used to giving journalists stories that are embargoed until a certain time. But yeah, is it difficult when you're on air when you're kind of supposedly speculating about a piece of information, but you actually know the information, you just can't reveal it yeah, for the, another the, hour? The, Was that difficult? It, yes, it is. Um, and what what you're doing is you're kind of quite carefully skirting around saying what it is, but you you have to you, you, your whole brain is saying, "Oh, go on." Get close to it, you know, <laughs> then say exactly what it is. The, the, the most ironic thing, I used to work for Thames Television, which is a whole different kind. I won't bore you with the details, but it was a fantastic television service station. And then I went to work at Sky and they had that franchise round where Thatcher, because of that film called Death on the Rock, decided that, you know, Thames would go and all that. And they refranchised it. And I got the, I got the, the, the embargoed copy saying Thames has lost its franchise. And I was, I looked at it, and I, I was thinking of all my friends that worked there who didn't know mm. this, and in fifteen minutes they would know this, and all their jobs were ending. And there was a wonderful woman called Jane who used to work on reception. Everybody in London knew, all the stars knew. You went to Thames Television, Jane on reception. And I remember thinking about her as I was reading some story about, I don't know, Serbia or something like that. A real thinking, person. What's she going to be like yeah. in fifteen minutes? And my producer said, "Break it now," and I did. It was really sad. Wow, I, re- I really miss Thames. I miss all those old ITV they, they were stations, the Ident oh, and everything. Yeah. But again, that, I'm demonstrating my geekery again because mm. I will look at them on YouTube, you know, and reminisce about the good old days. I was I was never on those television stations just to watch her, but you know, no, they were. It was like it was a, again. I, I won't sort of drag our discussion down into into needless into nostalgia. Is good nostalgia. Yeah. Well, but it, I mean, that was that was it was show, everything about it was showbiz. I mean, weirdly, you know, Thames News, the the, the capitals. News, we didn't used to transmit over the summer because people used to go on the summer holidays. There was no news, so we used to come, we used to come off air at the end of July and then say, okay, see you in September. I mean, it's bizarre, you know, because there was no news. It's actually amazing watching, because, I, you know, sometimes I do, as I just alluded to, I'll kind of watch old stuff on on YouTube and download it. And I remember watching a BBC News report from about 1981, and it was like, I think it was like between Christmas and New Year, and it was only a 10-minute thing. There was almost no film footage. They went to, like, the foreign correspondent. There was just a still picture of the foreign correspondent. And it's like, when you just compare it to now, it's like a completely different world. It is. Probably rolling news, of course, is they've normally got, like, 20 seconds of stock footage on any subject, and then something breaks, and it just revolves that same 20 seconds for, like, two hours. And then they get people like you and me on, you know, who... uh, I mean, (laughs) that's an interesting question, Mark, because clearly, you know, you're a podcaster and you're a commentator. Do you think it's easy for people like us who aren't, you know, don't come through the traditional journalism background to kind of break into telly because I mean I, I do national radio shows and TV I've been out to Hostily at Sky talking about loads of issues that I know very little about frankly Michael I mean do, have you noticed a change in the calibre of guests as it were <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what do you, what do you think excluded about us, us <laughs> yeah. well, we um, just turn up with no experience because we've got oh, <laughs> X, Y and Z a blog and then here we are in the studio um, well uh, what I think about it is that um, both of you um, know the most important thing which is actually quite a skill, which is knowing what the programme wants. And nobody knows a thousand percent about everything. They just don't. It's not like that. But but you two would bring, as far as I'm concerned, a, a refreshing um, view of, uh, of of a traditional subject, possibly. 
uh, a kind of refreshing candour about, uh, I'm not an expert in this, oh, I am, yeah. I'm, an, I'm an expert in this, what would you like to know? It's like this, you know, whenever there's an air crash, they get that old bloke on, don't they, talking about, you know, and he's, he's obviously yeah. an expert, and the t- uh, you know, you know the people I'm talking yeah. about. Mm. And you just think, oh, no, I don't want to hear that again. Give me, a, <laughs> give me a bloody line about something. Tell me something I don't know. That's the news editor thing. Tell me something I don't know, Paul. Come on. And as Mark says, you know, if you know good, you don't get invited back. But you're on the speed dial now, so enjoy it. The worst, worst I ever did. I did Sky News Sunrise with Steve Dixon a couple of years ago, and I, I, I don't drink, you see, and I was tweeting about you know how long it had been since my last drink and blah, blah, blah. And some producer at Sky had seen that and thought, right, we'll get him in just to talk about because there's some report had come out about you know not drinking alcohol and so on. And I thought, oh, I'll read up on that and just talk about the report. And they didn't tell me I was up with someone else, and I walk into the green room, and all I'd prepared for was the report. And the, the guest that I was with was the author of the report, so I'm about one minute away going live on sunrise <laughs> and they've got the report author next to me and I had nothing in the, in the tank other than what he'd written and they were clearly going to ask him that so I thought <laughs> I just had to completely waffle it uh, I mean tell us about Arise Michael is it is it a 24 hour news network How it will be it? yes right. um, it, it broadcasts 24 hours I mean the, the the thought behind it is that there's there's no broadcaster really that um, that, that caters for Africa I mean yeah there's Al Jazeera the BBC do a bit CNN and the rest of them but they 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 tend to do it in a in a very um, small way. Even though they have an Africa service, it's usually you know disasters. And on, and that. Yeah, we are yeah, not yeah. this this is not a good news service of any stretch of the imagination at all. But w- what is amazing about Africa is that there's fantastic growth story going on. It's got its problems, of course. It's got its problems, and it, and it, and and you can't link it all together because the north is different from the sub-Saharan and all on all these kind of things. I know all, all, all that stuff, but. From a business point of view, from my point of view, um, reflecting the global markets and and applying that to what that means to the stock markets and the currencies in in Africa, but mainly the explosive um, story of business in Africa is utterly amazing. I mean, Nigeria will overtake South Africa as being the biggest economy in Africa any minute now. And South Africa's, you know, big. It casts a shadow over the whole continent. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a functioning stock exchange in Cairo, even though they've got problems in Egypt. Casablanca is a massive. And it goes on and on and on. And, um, you know, uh, Nairobi Stock Exchange, um, the, 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 the kind of way in which the Chinese are going in there, the Russians are going in there, we're going in there to give them, to sell them, and to help and co-develop infrastructure, telephony, broadband. It's, it is, it's, it's an unbelievable story. So that's the environment. That's fascinating, you know. But, I mean, Mark, do you think there's problems with the kind of media portrayal of Africa? I mean, do you not think that the media generally has an issue with immigration? That You know, you, you think of Africa and a lot of people would think of the stereotypical image of a starving Ethiopian, you know, that, uh, just a kind of uh, pot for aid to be thrown into. Do you think the media needs to grow up in terms of its portrayal of Africa and other cultures and indeed immigration generally? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if something happens in some small town in the US, we'll probably hear about it. But if something pretty major happens in Africa, we'll be lucky if you get 30 seconds about it, usually. I mean, un- unless it's like, you know, a, a huge, huge story, but, yeah. you know, more minor stories um, don't tend to get covered. And I mean, I don't know if that's a function of the fact that, you know, the US is the biggest country in the world. 
um, you know, that they speak English and that, you know, African countries, you know, don't, don't kind of fit that sort of thing. Do you think we're just not interested right. in Africa? You're right. As, do you think the, the papers are just giving us what we want, i.e. not African stories because I mean, we're not is, that bothered? It's always easy to blame the media, isn't it? But I suppose you could argue that if people were really interested in stories about Africa, then, you know, they'd be buying newspapers that focused on it and so on. You know, they'd be reading like John Pilger and, you know, whoever else, you know, regularly covers that part of the world. Um, so I don't think you can solely blame the media, but I think I think what Michael's saying is right, actually. I, I have started to notice, actually, that there is more coverage. Maybe it's because there are more channels now. So I think about, you know, maybe when I'm abroad and I'm watching, um, you know, some of these... Um, you know, news um, news channels, the 24-hour news channels, you know, maybe like BBC World, and you know, they will cover things in Africa much more. But only, the... yeah, only in a small way, though. They don't, I mean, you, you would, you know, as a, well, BBC World, of course, is a self-financing organisation, but from the Rethian point of view, I mean, I would go in there and say you will cover, you know, because what they do is they have an African service, whatever, and, and then the part of their world news on the telly tends to have two or three African stories, and then the rest of it is backfilled mm. by other coverage around the world. And, I mean, I know people who work on the channel and they complain about that. They feel as though they've just been, you know, compartmentalised. They don't feel there's any particular wish to do it. Anyway, I just happen to think it's a, it's a fantastic story and it needs serving. Right, I mean, j- just coming to your point about um, immigration, though, Paul, mm. I was very shocked by... Um, there, was, uh, there was quite a lot of coverage of it, actually. A few months ago, there was this report from the Royal Statistical Society... Um, where it was talking about um, they'd asked a number of questions of people. Um, so things like, you know, how what percentage um, of uh, benefits do you think are, are fraudulently claimed? And, you know, people on average thought that it was £24 in every £100. So 24%. The actual figure is 0.7%. Um, you know, when it so there's comes... a huge perception gap. Well, exactly. And the, there were loads of different categories that they covered. You know, crime, you know, 58% of people think that crime isn't falling. It's been falling for about a decade at least. And where's it coming from? Is it just the evil Daily Mail stuff? Well, this again, it's easy it's... to blame the media, isn't it? But I think in this case, they are quite culpable because you've got to think about the way that these issues are covered. I, I remember, um, this is moving slightly away from the immigration point, but I remember seeing a presentation by David Nutt, the, oh, yes, um, the former chief scientific officer. Yeah, he, he, he was formerly of the, um, the a- ACMD. And um, he gave this presentation where he explained that in, what I don't know what year it was, it was a, a few years ago, they, they measured a 12-month period. And during that time, I think there were 28 or 26 deaths that were either directly attributed or um, a partial cause was ecstasy. Every single one of those incidents was reported in the mainstream media in a prominent way. And in the same year, something like 576 people had died of an overdose of paracetamol and a very, very small proportion of those, only, you know, I think you know, 2% or 3% of those deaths were even reported at all. So it just shows you that, you know, people, I think a lot of people in this country think that ecstasy is a terrible drug and that people are going to die if they take it. Actually, there are a lot of things that are much more dangerous, but because of the media coverage, and I'm sure it is because of the media coverage, people have a distorted view of that. And, you know, when it comes to some of these other figures, I mean, um, the same report people on average thought that, that 31% of people in this country are immigrants. The actual figure is 13%. There's just, it's just a, a huge distortion. You can't have a sensible debate about these issues if people aren't aware of what the real actual facts are. I mean, Michael, have you ever kind of covered a story where you thought, this is a legitimate story, I'm covering it, but on the other hand, should we be covering it generally because it might create a, a distorted picture generally? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I am guilty of um, 
partly, it wasn't so much covering a story, but when I left university and I was full of ideals, I went to work for a charity, who shall remain nameless, and we were the people that started the begging bowl business with Africa. We were the people that when there were floods in Africa, went around collecting clothing and then shipped it to Heathrow Airport where it went on planes, paid for by donations or not, ended up in custom shed in some godforsaken place on the African continent and stayed there or was nicked. Incredible. We used to call it bow ties to Bangladesh when, there was an, when the Indian floods were there because we'd go, we'd send our collections around the West End and these old dears who lived around the back of Harrods, whose husbands had died, used to whack the old dinner jackets onto the lorries and all the rest of it and the bow ties and stuff. And it used to be shipped out there. Incredible. All because the charity wanted to get publicity to be first. And the big ones, and this is the other thing about the big charities as well, they met because... I and some others were saying, and, and this, is, this is the story, which we, we couldn't do this story, and I'll tell you why in a second, but I was part of an organisation which I'm not proud about. And we said, you're spending 90 pence in every pound in administration. Wow. And getting the stuff over there, doing, you know, ads, um, press releases, which went round Fleet Street, as it then was, in a taxi, you know, to all the publications. Wow. And That's not always kind of, done now. Right, right yeah. <laughs> And they all met at our offices and decided, the year was 1973, but I, I, I won't tell you the names, but they're the bit. And they decided on a figure for administration of 17.5%. They decided on that figure. They said, that sounds about right. And it wasn't true. And what that did was that, that perpetuated this, this kind of Africa begging bowl kind of thing. Instead of actually getting to grips with the problems and giving people a living, you know, give it the old terrible cliche about the fishing rod, you know, and all the rest of it. Or the f- and it, they didn't even make peasant farmers. They didn't do anything. They just gave, and it was it was just all dissipated. It's, uh, and and, and, it, and that agree. image, you know, just stayed. It's, it's like we went, oh, you know, what was it, Band Aid? I mean, I went to the concert. You know, mm. what happened after that? Uh, actually, I mean, I work in PR, as you know, Michael, and one of my clients is Finca. They're a very, very big worldwide microfinance organisation. Yeah, that's, and, that's, that's what it's at. And the, the entrepreneurs of Africa and, and all of these countries where they need help, they just need access to capital like we've got. Yeah, you know, and it's the whole thing. Absolutely. Kind of you know, you, you know, give someone yeah. a fish uh, yeah, and, instead and of teaching them to fish, yeah. etc. So, yeah, absolutely. They do. It's incredibly, uh, yeah. incredibly worthwhile. And, and, and uh, a, bit of, a bit of a helping hand from. There are loads of companies in this country, in the United States, that would send their middle-ranging executives for a year to say, teach these people not just to do farming on their own land, but agribusiness. Teach them how to get the stuff to market, you know, and all this. That, that, that's what really Do you think the media happen. have a duty, though, to t- try and kind of uh, I don't believe challenge these stereotypes? I, I don't believe in media and duty. Do you not? No, I don't. I, I, I believe in stories because mm. that's, that's, what, that's what the media is. And you were talking about, you know, the, the immigration stories and the rest of it. The reason that those are in the newspapers and the way that they are is because... The news editors get old too quickly. Mm. Well, that's a great story. Let's do that. Yeah, immigrant Romanians in Bradford nicking all the jobs. <laughs> and they do. That's how they begin to think. It's not true, but it sells newspapers. Um, and I, I think that, that generally people individually in this country actually are quite capable of having a sensible debate about immigration. But when it's all, when it's all together, when it's, when it's all felt to be a common feeling, then it, it's, it, get, it gets very destructive. But don't if you don't you know the the thing about newspapers is I think most people who read them understand where the newspapers are coming from. 
Do you agree, Mark? Do you, I mean, do you think the media have a duty to, to try and cover the immigration issue in a more balanced way? Yes, balance. I would absolutely, I agree. Balance, objectivity. But a story's a story. But the, mm. the, the problem is, though, the, Fair point. the, the balance, I mean, you, you can... You can try and strive for a, an individual story to be balanced, but in aggregate, over any significant time period, the number, the volume of these stories is what... It's the constant drip, drip, drip. You know, even people who don't necessarily read the papers will see the headlines and they'll see the coverage on the television. Respond, you know, because quite often, you know, television news will respond to what's in the newspapers that day. You know, the you know, the, the phenomenon of the paper review and all the rest mm. of it. You've done them, I've done them. Um, Where paper review stalwarts, well, are we, Max? Yes. Uh, you know, and that, that helps to drive this agenda. So, you know, often issues will be talked about in a way that makes them seem much more significant than perhaps the statistics would have you think. But you've, you've said it, you see, why have a paper review? Who gives a toss what's in the papers? Why, why do television companies... Well, me, me, me and Paul care because it gets because us on, it, well, gets no, us on no, the television no, and, and, and the I'm, radio. I'm, I'm, no, forgive me, I'm sure it's very entertaining, but, you know, the, the actual concept of it... I agree you. know, you. Th- this is what it's about, isn't it? So what are these papers thinking? It's like the media staring at itself, it isn't is. it? Well, it's, it's not... But I'm just sorry, I'm just... Try, uh, forgive me, I didn't mean to jump in too hard, but, you know, it's like, yeah, of course, that's what the Daily Mail's saying about this. Mm. So you reflect it even further. But what I find interesting about paper reviews... It's is lazy. They're, they're not paper reviews. It, there's notionally, the you know, the Express are covering this story but then they just the people just discuss it round the table like we are we're not actually reviewing the papers no they're not I we're mean, just I, using I, them as a springboard I, to try to monologue about certain absolutely. issues absolutely they what they should be doing is saying isn't it interesting look they've taken that view about that after that story over there and the op-eds like this and have you seen how they've approached that story about business i would have done it in a completely different way <laughs> yeah and mm. that's that's what you should be doing that's yeah. why they get you in thank you both of you for coming in i normally at this point kind of mention people's twitter handles and things like that but michael i don't Think, are you on Twitter yet? No, I, I, I mean, I know Why I ought you to were be, refused, but... oh, Michael. No, no, I, I just, I just, I haven't got, I mean, I, I haven't got anything to say. What's the website for Arise then? People are interested in this. How can they go on? www.arise.tv. Arise.tv, yeah, and it's, right. And it's, and, it, and it's all there. And Excellent. It's, it's nascent at the moment because we're in soft launch mode, nascent. as we say in the Good marketing word. department. But um, it's get, it's getting there. And I, I have every, uh, it'll long, long outlast me. I'll be, you know, shuffled off at some stage. I'm sure you won't. And uh, Mark, tell us, uh, your, what's your Twitter and what's your blog? Um, the URL is um, markreckons.blogspot.com. Right. If people are interested. And also I do a podcast myself, which you kind of alluded to at the start, which Absolutely. is called uh, House of Comments. Uh, we It's a weekly uh, kind of canter through the, the major political stories of the previous weeks. So. And how do people get that? Um, it's available on iTunes. It's available through all good uh, podcast downloading software and uh, and the rest of it. So, and um, I always uh, have a link on my blog as well to the, to the episodes. So, Excellent. Um, well, gentlemen, thank you I don't mind giving my email, actually, which is, which is michael.wilson at arise.com. TV. Yeah, why did you tail off toward the end, Michael? (laughs) (laughs) So lazy you couldn't even be bothered to finish your own email address. (laughs) I quite like that. Well, if anyone wants to follow me and uh, follow my ridiculous nonsensical tweets, I'm at Paul W.R. Blanchard. But the biggest Twitter that you need to follow is uh, the Media Society's our own, very own, which is at the Media Society. Uh, Please do contemplate joining the Media Society. You can find out how to do that on our website, www.themedia.com. MediaSociety.com and this has been the Media Society Podcast. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!